Well, hello, and welcome back to AOPA's Pilot Information Center podcast series. Thanks so much for joining us today. Our topic for this podcast is drones and the new FAR Part 107 for Small Unmanned Aerial Systems, or UAS. This episode is brought to you by AOPA's You Can Fly Department. For more information, you can visit our drone page on AOPA's website. Paul, refresh my memory how we get there. Well, if you just go to the AOPA website, you don't have to be signed in. You don't have to be a member. But you go to the main page, you'll see a bunch of tabs there. You want to go to the Go Fly tab, put your mouse over it, and then there'll be a drop-down. Go to Aircraft Ownership, and then once you get to that page, you'll get to the, the Drones button, and you click that, and all the information's on that page on our website. Great, thanks. And uh, if you have further questions or can't quite find that resource, you can give us a call here as well, 800-USA-AOPA, and then press option 2 on your phone to speak to someone like Paul or his counterparts here in our Pilot Information Center. With that, I'll give it over to Kat. Kat, good morning. Hi, good morning. I'm Kat Swain. I'm the Senior Director of UAS, which is Unmanned Aircraft Systems, or Drones, for AOPA, located here in Frederick, Maryland. we got a full house in the room today, and joining me today is Jared Allen, who is one of our attorneys from AOPA's Legal Services Plan. Uh, Ferdy Mack, who you just heard from, is our manager at AOPA's PIC. Justin Barkowski, AOPA's Director of Regulatory Affairs. Rune Duke, AOPA's Director of Government Affairs, Airspace and Air Traffic, and then also Paul Feldmeyer, Aviation Technical Specialist here in the PIC to answer some of your questions today. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Federal Aviation Regulation Part 107, um, and that is specifically around small UAS, so those unmanned aircraft systems or drones, what it means for the drone space, and what it means for growth within general aviation. So with that, We'll kind of dive into what 107 is, who it applies to, and um, why it's needed here in general aviation. So my gut is that 107 is going to be a word that we toss around just as frequently as 61 and 91 and 43 and part one and all of our other favorite classic hits here in the PIC. I agree. I think, uh, you know, that'll become a familiar familiar term for all of us. And I think a lot of the questions are now, who does it apply to? Um, who does it apply to in the drone space? Does it apply to the hobbyist out there flying for fun? Does it apply to the drone pilots that are out there fl- flying for commercial companies? So I think that's really where we need some clarification for our membership. Yeah, so right now Part 107 uh, is going to apply to small unmanned aircraft system operations, small UAS. That small UAS is basically the small unmanned aircraft and all of its associated elements like the flight control system. Uh, a small unmanned aircraft has to weigh less than 55 pounds. Now the, the, the rule that people may already be familiar with is the special rule for model aircraft, and that lays out certain criteria that you must meet in order to be what they call a hobbyist uh, operator. So the hobbyist operator, if you're still uh, complying with those criteria and those conditions, then this rule will not affect you. You can still continue to operate under those conditions, uh, but Part 107 will, will open up new uh, opportunities for people in, in the drone space. You know what's interesting is it, it's it's not only commercial operators that can use Part 107, right? So so hobbyists could take advantage of it if they want. 
um, such as uh, the community-based organization. That hasn't really been clearly defined, and if you don't want to use that system, you could use Part 107. Right. I think the you know the commercial rule that this has been kind of referred to is a little bit misleading because there are recreational users who can take advantage of this. You know, the example I use is a private institution, private university who's doing academic research. That's not really commercial, but it's also a kind of a recreational type of activity, and they would uh, they would fall under this. All right. And we've been talking a lot about 107. When does it go into effect? When is that start date? When is that that calendar date? It was actually published today in the Federal Register, and it'll it'll go into effect on August 29th. So what do I do if I want to operate a commercial drone now? What do I do? Well, right now you you cannot take advantage of the opportunities under Part 107. You'll have to wait until August 29. Uh, If you have a current Section 333 exemption, then you can continue to operate under that uh, for the time being. But you will have to wait until August 29. Okay, and isn't it true if I already have a Section 333 exemption, maybe one of you guys can clarify this, um, if I'm already a commercial um, remote pilot or drone operator, I have a Section 333 exemption, um, when 107 does go into effect in August, do I have to abide by 107 or can I still fly under my exemption? Yeah, so once the once the rule goes into effect, uh, Section 333 uh, holder can take advantage of either one. So they can continue to operate under the conditions of their exemption, or they can opt to operate under uh, Part 107. It's really up to them. We we see a lot of operators probably going for Part 107 because it will provide leniency and and accommodate their operation. Okay. What are some of of the ways it can accommodate that you see the differences in the exemption and 107? Sure. Well, just the way that the process works, but also, you know, there's waivers. Uh, there's a simplified process to uh, communicate with air traffic control that will be in place before the uh, rule takes effect. Also, in the ways they can operate uh, at the 400 feet, um, it just seems like a simple process for a lot of operators versus the the triple three process. Okay. And wasn't it in the proposed rule when the FAA proposed the rule last year? Wasn't it? Uh, 500 feet that was proposed for drone operations and now in 107 it's 400 feet. Uh, why the difference? Well they they responded to AOPA's comments and other uh, stakeholders comments that uh, we saw a need for a buffer. Predominantly manned aircraft are operating 500 feet above ground level, 500 feet away from structures so that's why they went to 400 feet for the drone uh, operators and that makes a lot of sense and uh, I think that's a, a smart decision to keep that buffer in place. So, Rune, isn't there an opportunity to fly above 400 AGL if you are a, a remote pilot? That's right. As long as you remain within a 400-foot radius of a structure, you can fly as high as that structure is plus 400 feet AGL, and that can take you into Class E airspace. So you can fly in Class G and Class E airspace, so long as that Class E is not uh, you know, allocated to a surface area of an airport. Okay, very good. So it allows the commercial operations to to still happen within that uh, airspace buffer for manned aviation. Now, we've talked a little bit about 107, when it starts and kind of who it applies to, but how do I go about getting my uh, certification within 107 if I'm interested in going that route? Right, so if you want to operate under Part 107, you're going to have to get what's called a remote pilot certificate with a small UAS rating. 
So there's really three eligibility requirements that you, you have to at least meet in order to uh, proceed with the, the application process. You have to be 17 years old, be able to read, speak, write, and understand the English language, and be vetted by the Transportation Security Administration. The vetting requirement, it's, it's very similar to when you go and buy a plane ticket and they, they run your name against the terror watch list. I mean, that's it's the same sort of process. Uh, so those are the three eligibility requirements. Uh, assuming you meet those, then you can, you, you have to demonstrate what they call aeronautical knowledge. Um, so if you've never, if you're new to the community and you've never done this, you'll have to take what's called an FAA uh, aeronautical knowledge test. And there'll be various subjects that you'll have to um, uh, study up on and, and that will be tested. Uh, the FAA actually published a um, unmanned aircraft systems airman certification standards document that lays out sort of the, the information that someone would have to know uh, in order to successfully complete that test. And those, so those are the only only requirements. And so I could see where it'd be good to kind of get a get a jump on things before August 29th and really get out there to the FAA site and see what I needed to do, what requirements, what knowledge testing center is close to me, so that I know you know where to go to to take that test. Um, is there any ground school requirement? Do I have to attend a ground school or? No, so there's no ground school requirement. Uh, traditionally, with pilots, you've had to get this, what's called an endorsement, and you've had to do some sort of ground school requirement um, in order to take the knowledge test. But in this case, for remote pilots, you're new to the system, you will not have to get any uh, endorsement, you won't have to go to any formal ground school or get any formal ground training. You'll be able to just uh, study up and, and take the test. Now I'm looking around the room here, and I know myself, I'm a, I'm a CFI, and I know there's some other flight instructors and pilots here at the table with me today. If we want to get a remote pilot certificate, what process do we have to go through? Because I know that process is a little bit different for a Part 61 pilot versus somebody new. Right, so the FAA actually responded to uh, another AOPA recommendation, and that was to uh, make available an online course uh, for current Part 61 certificate holders. Uh, the online course is administered to the FAST team. Uh, they do a lot of the, the WINGS programs and other, another uh, safety education. And they'll be able to uh, take that online course, get a completion certificate, and then you can go to any FAA authorized individual, most commonly a CFI or a DPE, and they'll walk you through the application process. Once you've met with that individual, the FAA-authorized individual, then you can uh, get your temporary certificate and start operating. And there's no medical requirement, correct? No, you do not have to have a medical certificate, um, but anytime you're operating, you, you cannot operate if you have any reason to think that you have a, a medical condition that would uh, interfere with the safe operation these small UAS. Okay, so very similar to us in the manned aviation world. Paul, did you mention the other day that there's also a flight review requirement? There is a flight review requirement that if you are a Part 61 certificated pilot, you need to have a current flight review to be able to take advantage of the online course and to go through a CFI to get your, your application process. So, um, no medical required for flight review either. That's a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> you, you do not need to have a current medical to, to get a flight review. 
um, as long as your instructor has one. Um, so and is willing to act as pilot command of the aircraft. Right. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so. And again, but those those requirements don't kick in until the 29th of August when the rule implements. However, getting getting a start on the process is always a good thing. That material out is already out there as far as the um, for us Part 61 pilots to take the online knowledge test. So. Yeah, the online course is available through the the FAA safety team's website. And and the uh, the written the aeronautical written that you mentioned for the non-certificated pilots, am I going to go through the same flow as far as, you know, going to a, like a laser grade or a CATS testing center just like I would for any other pilot certificate written? That, that's exactly right. Okay. And the FAA has a list of testing centers on their website that they can refer to. Great. Now, we talked a little bit before, and Ren, you touched a little bit about some of the kind of general operating limitations of Part 107 and, and what it applies to. Um, Currently, right now, when people want to fly drones commercially, they have to have a visual observer. So it's sometimes a lot of extra expense, a lot of extra manpower to have that person um, either on staff or available for the company. Under 107, is that going to be a requirement still to have that visual observer? Well, the uh, remote pilot in command is required to uh, have visual observation of the aircraft. Um, they can have a visual observer uh, available and to assist in that task, but it doesn't alleviate the remote pilot in command from having that responsibility. Um, yeah. But they don't have to have a second person, though. There's no requirement for that. All right. <clears throat> and still, it's, as far as 107, it's still the requirements of visual line of sight, um, and airspeed requirements and so forth of the drone, correct? Correct, correct. And and a visibility requirement of three miles uh, and a ceiling and distance from cloud requirement. Uh, and that's all to uh, accommodate that sea and avoid um, for other aircraft. All right. Now, we, we talked about what airspace, you know, I can fly in under 107, but what if I want to fly um, in controlled airspace? Is there a process in place right now for us to do that, or one that's being put in process when 107 implements in August? Sure, sure. Yeah, we touched a little bit about um, uh, where UAS can fly, and to fly into controlled airspace of uh, Class B, C, D, and, and E surface areas, um, you're going to need permission from air traffic control. Um, and so the FAA right now is developing a centralized web-based application site for uh, remote pilots to go to and to apply to fly in that airspace. Um, they're flushing it all out right now, so it should be effective the same time the rule is effective. Um, and this is taking a risk-based approach. So the FAA has already completed a risk analysis for Class E airspace. They completed that a couple weeks ago. So they're going through the rest of the airspace um, with the idea that they'll get to be last and uh, accommodate operations in Class B airspace probably last. Um, but uh, to, to go through this process and apply in that airspace, you, you will need air traffic control permission. Do so. we know how long that process is going to take, for instance, when somebody applies for one of those waivers, about how long it'll take for somebody to get that? So there's no indication uh, for, for a blanket approval, right? It, it's probably going to be uh, each situation, each case is going to be a little bit different depending on the airspace and what that operator wants to do. Um, so the FAA and that local ATC facility, that air traffic control facility, is really going to have to look at what the impact to operations and to other uh, aircraft operators is going to be before they approve it. Okay. Now I know under the exemption process, a lot of a lot of commercial organizations in the drone space, um, maybe a good way to put it, had some heartburn because they had under the limitations the 500 foot non-participant rule. Does that still exist within 107? 
So I know you can't fly directly over people still that aren't part of the operation, but what about gaining permission from landowners and so forth? So, so, so that that is something um, uh, I think that I don't know. Maybe maybe you can speak to that a little bit better than I can. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I when I was going through some of the the documentation of one hundred and seven, the non participant rule is there when it comes to directly overflying people that aren't part of the mission. So, the pilot in command, any extra visual observers that might be on hand, any people, let's say in a search and rescue operation or that are incidental to that operation. Um, as long as they're briefed by the pilot in command about the drone operations, um, the drone pilot is allowed to overfly them. However, any non-participants have to seek shelter in a vehicle or under a structure. Um, they did do away in 107 with the 500-foot radius, so that allows people to um, have a little bit more, um, I won't say leniency, but a little bit more flexibility in the areas that they're going to fly over. So they don't have to get that landowner permission. I know another question that's come up, um, I've, I've heard it... Um, but for myself and also down in the in the pick area, the pilot information center is how do pilots fly at uncontrolled airports where there's no ATC? How do they go about that? Um, and maybe answer that both as if I want to fly as a hobbyist and maybe if I want to fly as a commercial remote operator or pilot. Sure. sure. Okay. Well, to start with part 107, um, the important thing is you can fly near or at uncontrolled airports, you know, within Class G airspace. Um, and it's important that the rule did include uh, a change from what was proposed, and that is the remote pilot cannot interfere with the manned operations at those airports, seaports, heliports. Um, and, and interference is being defined kind of broadly that just delaying an aircraft operation is interference. Um, so that accommodates the safety aspect of making sure remote pilots are accommodated and can fly in that airspace, but they are staying away from manned pilots. And, and so we certainly recommend that, you know, if you don't have a need to fly near an uncontrolled airport or any airport or heliport, to, to give it a wide berth. Um, aircraft maneuver in that area, they're doing instrument approaches, um, they could be operating from any direction. So it's best to, to try to stay away from Class G or Class E airports. Not to, not to mention the way you paint the picture, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, so the UAS is lower on the pecking order as far as right, right of way. That's right, right, yes. Um, uh, so all other aircraft have, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, ability, right, to, to operate ahead of a UAS, and the UAS always has to give way to manned pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was included, including uh, emergency powers for uh, remote pilots that they have to still give way to, to manned aircraft. Hmm. That's another line item in the right-of-way rules for our students now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul and, and Ferdy, looking over at you guys in the Pilot Information Center, you know, I know that once 107 got published, you know, the, the calls started coming in to our organization about what it meant for um, manned pilots and what it meant for unmanned pilots. So what resources are there within our organization to kind of help navigate the waters of Part 107 and drones in particular? Well, you can always give us a call or send us an email, um, but what you're really looking at is we can help out with a lot of regulatory questions, how the regulations read. Um, we can, what I always say is if, if we can't find the answer, we don't know the answer off the top of our head, we can at least point you in the right direction. So if you have a question, you can always give us a call or send us an email, but really, um, we can't do legal interpretations or any of that kind of stuff. That's that's more for 
lawyers to handle we're, we're pilots and CFIs but we can we can definitely point you in the right direction we can answer your questions if if we have the answers we can look them up that's I mean that's all I learned well you said you said you're a pilot and a CFI but you're also a drone pilot too right yeah well, I have some experience not not with quadcopters but with with other bigger stuff but it's uh, it, it's all interesting the new rule I think will give everybody uh, access to the airspace which is ultimately what we're looking for, and it also gives rules to be enforced and to operate under, which makes everybody safer because 99% of the people out there are going to follow the rules. The other 1% is why they have enforcement. Actions. Right. And when it, you, you, you set me up and you teed me off perfectly, I'm looking across the table at our legal services plan attorney, Jared Allen. And, Jared, you know, when Paul brought up enforcement actions, you know, what can happen if somebody violates a condition or limitation on 107? Sure. So, so at this point in time, we have no reason to believe that the FAA is going to treat uh, uh, small UAS operators any differently than they would uh, traditional man pilots. And uh, in those situations, any sort of alleged violation of the federal aviation regulations would typically result in a proposed suspension of the pilot's uh, certificate. And those uh, suspensions can range uh, really anywhere from 30 days uh, on up, depending on the nature of the violations and the aggravating and, and mitigating factors. So in a case like this for uh, uh, UAS operators, uh, for example, if there is an allegation that they were operating the aircraft uh, too low or too close to a manned aircraft or, or really too close to any sort of uh, vessel vehicle or structure, uh, we could see the FAA proposing a suspension of that uh, remote pilot certificate for anywhere from 30 days, 90 days, even 180 days, all the way to revocation. Uh, that is the case in some instances. And uh, civil penalties are also an option as well. Now, typically those are reserved for people who do not hold the certificate, but uh, when you have a commercial operation, you have both the certificate holder, the individual pilot, as well as the commercial operator. And you can have a situation where that operator is going to be fined for the acts of their pilot. So both of the entities involved have some uh, liability and certainly uh, a lot of motivation to uh, operate in accordance with the regulations. Wow, that sounds pretty serious. I mean, as Paul mentioned, the idea of us plugging into and sharing the airspace comes with it some uh, some threat of you better make sure you know what you're doing. Well, absolutely, yeah. and we have seen some cases from the FAA against uh, UAS operators. Now, we certainly expect those cases to grow, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and we will certainly see how both the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board, the uh, independent agency who oversees uh, these cases from the FAA, how these agencies uh, enforce these new regulations and uh, we'll get a much better idea of what uh, the operators can anticipate if they are uh, alleged to have violated one of these regulations. So a pilot is a pilot is a pilot. Hmm. Absolutely. Mm. So in other words, welcome to the family. Welcome to the internal <laughs> aviation community, remote pilots. So they're, they're another uh, member or sibling of our general aviation community, and uh, I extend you an official welcome. But with that comes a lot of responsibility uh, flying in the airspace, and that's one thing that we're really looking forward to here at our organization is helping that integration and helping smooth that pathway. Uh, for integration, because as we talked about today, there's a lot of stuff within the technology itself, within the airspace, um, pilot certification, that is 
in progress or is still working out as the technology continues to evolve and continues to improve. So um, a lot of room for growth. To me, 107 is just kind of the, the, the start of the cake. We haven't even started putting the icing on it yet. So there's, there's a lot of growth potential uh, for FAA regulations. I don't want to say more FAA regulations, but you know there, there comes more room for um, uh, growth from all sides of it, not just the technology side of it. There are a lot of people out there who don't yet know what a far aim is, but they're going to <laughs> hopefully sooner or later and have their well-worn copy on their bookshelf like the rest of us. Yep, exactly. So we've talked a lot a bit about you know unmanned and what we need to do to become a 107 pilot and what are the differences between the exemptions that already exist for the commercial UAS world unmanned world, but how does 107 really affect me, or why do, why do I need to care as a manned pilot? I mean, I'm, CAT is a manned pilot too. I fly airplanes. I, I don't just fly drones. So why is it important to me, and what do I need to know coming out of this podcast today about 107 as a manned pilot? Well, I think one of the, uh, the important parts of Part 107 to the manned community is just to be aware that where they are flying. They're going to be flying below 400 feet, just like the hobbyists. Uh, another important note is, um, unlike with the triple three exemptions, now there is no NOTAM or flight plan requirement. Um, you can still go to Lockheed Martin's web portal, and they have a UAS page, and you can look graphically at the NOTAMs that are published and those who do volunteer a flight plan. Um, but with this rule, you're, you're going to see fewer people actually providing that information. So you really need to just have the expectation that in certain airspace, at certain altitudes, uh, you can encounter uh, a UAS. So it's a natural evolution of our airspace, I guess is a, a good way to call it, as we welcome a new part of the general aviation community in. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about um, Lockheed Martin, and there's not a requirement for the notice to airmen that some of us pilots have gotten used to when we get flight briefings and we hear that there's going to be unmanned aircraft systems flying um, in the area of our proposed route. Um, but there's so many other apps that are out there available to both manned and unmanned uh, that can help kind of bridge that gap. I know one in the unmanned community that's used quite a lot is airmap.com, and that kind of helps. Uh, you can plug in an address, you can plug in GPS coordinates, and it kind of helps show where you can fly, where it's legal to fly, um, whether you're flying recreationally as a hobbyist or whether you're flying commercially. It tells you where the closest heliports are, airports are, and so forth, and gives you some good general situational awareness. So. You know, those tools are popping up left and right, and they'll continue to. And as, as pilots, both manned and unmanned, I want to, you know, really push for the use of our, all of our resources out there, both from AOPA's side of our resources, both on our website, from our Pilot Information Center, from my legal service plan attorney, and from my government affairs folks here today. You know, the resources are here to help you, and we're here to help you navigate some of those waters that are a little gray in the 107 area. So guys, before we wrap up, anything that y'all want to add before we um, end our podcast today? Uh, yeah, refresh my memory. When do I not, when, when can I avoid having to pay any attention to any of this? Under what weight and what kinds of operations? You know, I, I just want to buy something at Walmart and go fly it for fun. I don't have to consider all this if that's all I'm doing in my backyard, right? If you're flying under, if you're under 55, well, you still have to register. So, okay. drone under 55 pounds has to be registered. So, okay. that's one thing I always uh, tell anybody that asks me, make sure that you register your aircraft. 
because it is considered an aircraft by the FAA. And again, make sure that if you want to fly in your backyard, make sure your backyard's not next to an airport. You know, that's one thing mm-hmm. people don't realize is, you know, I might be close to a heliport. I might be close. So use those tools that are out there. Make sure you're aware of the situational awareness of where you're flying and what you're doing. Um, make sure that if you're flying as a hobbyist, you're flying under a community set of rules. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's, there's certain... Um, and, and Justin, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's certain guidelines as a hobbyist we need to make sure we cover um, before we launch a drone out of our backyard. So, um, you know, if we're flying under public law um, as a model aircraft and we're flying strictly for our own hobby and recreational use, so for as long as you're not flying for compensation or for hire mm-hmm. for anybody and you're just flying for your own fun, you're following a community-based set of rules. And Rune kind of talked about how that's getting worked out. Um, here shortly, and that your your aircraft, your drone is under 55 pounds, you don't interfere and you give way to manned aircraft and you're not anywhere near an airport, and you maintain that visual line of sight, you can go have as much fun as you want as a hobbyist. So those are kind of the, the guidelines for the hobbyist mm-hmm. um, to help you know what you can and can't do and when you, know, you cross that line into 107. Absolutely, Ken. I'll just add to that that if there is any part of your... Uh, operation of a, a UAS or a drone that is in furtherance of a business in any way, chances are you're going to be looking at operating under Part 107 rather than the, the hobby or recreational use guidelines. So the, the the situation, for example, we tend to get a lot is, you know, I want to buy a DJI Phantom with a camera and take pictures for real estate. Boom, you're squarely within... Where you with one with one hundred seven, or yeah. any time that you sell that video or those pictures, that becomes a commercial activity, and that's where one hundred seven or an exemption would need to come into play. So, really, uh, for something ra- relatively small like a like a Phantom, uh, I can take pictures. But as soon as I start selling things, is mm-hmm. when things when the environment changes in which I need to operate. Monetizing it on YouTube is another another way you can get yourself in trouble too. Oh, interesting. Absolutely, and. Not to get too down in the weeds on these types of issues, but the FAA has indicated that if it's, uh, for example, selling pictures, if you only uh, intend to sell those pictures or you don't intend to sell those pictures uh, when you actually operate uh, your UAS or drone, but later on you come across a good one and you say, oh, you know what, I think maybe I want to sell this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may not necessarily be a commercial operation because you're only desiring to sell it after the fact and and have the intent to sell it after the fact, Hmm. but uh, (laughs) good luck trying to... Or squarely in yeah. shades of gray. At that Absolutely, point. and that's why I would say it's just a general recommendation that if you are uh, considering any sort of activity that you would be selling something that uh, is a result of your U.S. operation, to uh, take a good close look at Part 107 and, and what's required for commercial operations. All right, that YouTube monetization piece—that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Never thought of that. Jared, can you uh, give us a little bit of an idea? how AOPA's pilot protection services with respect to the legal coverage facet might plug into all this? Absolutely. So the AOPA Legal Services Plan uh, does provide coverage uh, for both uh, hobby, recreational, and commercial UAS or drone operators. And typically this coverage is going to be the nature of protection against FAA enforcement actions. Again, like we talked about earlier, if the FAA alleges that you violated uh, any of the regulations that might apply to your operation. Uh, It also uh, provides coverage for those unfortunate situations when you have an accident or a serious incident. And that's important because 
Uh, unlike some other uh, operations under the regulations, there's an actual independent reporting requirement that the FAA imposes on commercial OES operators. And basically that's the, that the remote pilot in command of the uh, small UAS is required to report an accident to the FAA within 10 days if there's either death, serious injury, or loss of consciousness, uh, or there's damage to property that uh, exceeds uh, $500 to uh, repair or replace that property. And that's a report that's going to be filed uh, to the FAA electronically to uh, their uh, regional operations centers uh, or to the FISDO, um, either by telephone or electronically. But that's a requirement that the regulations impose and that must be met. And that's in addition to uh, the requirements of the NTSB concerning mm. unmanned aircraft accidents. So there are going to be uh, some paperwork issues that you certainly might need assistance with. And that's coverage that you can find under the uh, AOPA Legal Services Plan. Jared, I have a question for you. You talked about, you know, if if the if the property damage exceeds a certain value, does that include the drone itself, or is that property damage to others? Oh, thank you for bringing that up. And that's damage to something other than the drone itself. Okay. All right. Thanks for the clarification. And that AOPA Pilot Protection Services starts at a mere $49 a year, and that actually helps with both legal and medical facets of your pilot activity. So uh, if you're not already familiar with that product, uh, you should check it out. Head over to AOPA.org, and you'll find a product link across the very top of the website. All right, gang, I guess it's time to wrap it up. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today. And to our listeners, thanks for being here as well. If you have any aviation-related questions as part of your membership, you can contact our Pilot Information Center staff. And by the way, when you contact us, you don't just get us. You get everybody here in the room and more. Uh, AOPA is one big family of a variety of departments and areas of expertise. And if one person can't find it, we'll get in touch with another person, and we'll find out the answers to your, all your questions. Contact us at 800-USA-AOPA. That's 800-872-2672. Then press option 2 on your phone to get Paul. Or you can email your questions at pilotassist at aopa.org. Thanks so much for everybody being here. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.